This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today is Dr. Felix Trede and Ms. Laura Shapiro from the East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, the largest community health center in Massachusetts, to discuss the findings of the CDC's latest Youth Risk Behavior Survey released this past February and their related behavioral health clinical care programming. Felix and Laura, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You're most uh, welcome. Dr. Trede and Ms. Shapiro's bios are, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, the latest Youth Behavior Risk Survey findings are not surprising, sobering. The COVID pandemic is now endemic. Federal policymakers remain indifferent to the fact schools are killing fields. And the fact that federal healthcare policymakers refuse to address the healthcare industry's massive carbon footprint, despite the fact in a survey of 10,000 children throughout 10 countries published in 2021 in The Lancet found respondents thought that, quote-unquote, humanity is doomed and the future frightening, close quote. Among other youth risk behavior survey findings in the CDC report, in 2021, 40% of high school students, 60% of female high school students, and 70% of high school LBGT students reported feeling sad or hopeless. Concerning mental health and suicidality, in 2021, 22% of high school students had seriously considered suicide, 18 made a suicide plan, and 10 had attempted suicide. These percents are the highest reported since the first risk behavior survey in 2011. Among female students, almost 20% experienced sexual violence, 15 had ever been physically forced to have sex, and the percent of students overall who had ever been forced to have sex remained unchanged between 11 and 21. So that is a brief overview, and with me again to discuss the survey and their behavioral health services in Boston is Dr. Felix Trede and Ms. Laura Shapiro. So with that, um, Obviously, first, of course, I'm interested in your take or reaction to these survey findings. I'll note again that this survey was conducted in 2021. There's always a lag to compile and publish the findings. But if I'm, I'm interested, based on your experience and what you're seeing in Boston, uh, what's your take on this data? And of course, there are other, there's much other or additional data, so feel free uh, to make note of uh, other findings. Yeah, David, I'm, I'm happy to take that one first. Um, I think that the, the data from this survey, it really reflects a shift that I believe has been occurring in teenagers over the past decade, you know, where we've seen an increase in internalized symptoms, such as anxiety and depression, and a decrease in externalized symptoms, you know, such as substance abuse and risky sexual behaviors. Um, I think those trends in my practice and from what I've seen predated the pandemic. But I believe that the pandemic really exacerbated a lot of these issues, a lot of the mental health issues affecting our children and our teenagers. Um, you know, we've, we've seen big increases in anxiety and depression, increases in social isolation and loneliness, um, a significant increase in social media use, because I believe that 
social media use has largely replaced the regular in-person social interactions that I think children really need in their development. Um, so overall, yeah, I think that the survey really it, it reflects this shift from um, more externalized symptoms to more internalized symptoms, um, which often also go more unnoticed, right? If you have a teenager who's um, withdrawn, who's spending a lot of time in their room, parents may not notice that as um, evidently as some of the externalizing behaviors. So that's, that's another concern for me. Okay, thank you. Laura, do you want to make comment? Sure, I can follow some of that up. And I agree that the pandemic did expose a lot of what we were seeing before the pandemic, especially in terms of um, social media practice. You know, prior to the pandemic, I was spending a lot of time talking to parents about how you limit Snapchat and how you, you know, can have external factors and something I saw in my own life as a parent at the time. And then the pandemic happened and their entire world went online. And that really was a shift for all of us, but it really affected, you know, a lot of the kids that we see, especially um, those who are already marginalized in some way, because they didn't have the isolation, they didn't have the external safety nets to protect them that school and socialization provide. So I think we saw that, you know, in some of the girl data, I think a lot of what I saw in my experience was adolescent girls taking on family roles in the house, you know, if parents were working, essential employees, a lot of times it was like the oldest girl, maybe eighth, ninth grade, even younger, maybe seventh, responsible for online learning with younger kids. And all of that creates more externalization for a lot of kids in my experience. Okay, thank you. Since you both mentioned social media, I'll just uh, note, and I don't know if you're familiar with this book, it was published recently, I think it was Hopkins, but Susan Lynn at Harvard published a book, uh, Who's Raising the Kids? And it was a critique of uh, uh, social media, the time uh, particularly teenagers spend uh, on social media, et cetera, and the, and the health effects thereof. Um, so I discussed that a couple of months ago. Let me, as a follow-up question, you know, usually when you read about uh, – clinical or healthcare research related to uh, children, uh, say academic achievement, it always seems like girls are doing better than boys. Um, my read of this survey is it, it seemed, seemed to be the opposite. The, the data for girls seemed worse. Um, uh, would you agree to that? And, and if you do, why do you, maybe they took a bigger hit because of isolation. Uh, boys tend to be less social. But is that your impression? And what do you think explains that if that is the case? I think, I mean, my opinion, it depends on the measure of what's being measured. It looks like the mental health of girls took a hit. Right, right. That's I'm not aware. Me. I'm not aware of the recent academic data. I feel like a lot of times where girls do well is with behavior and academic functioning sometimes. I, I haven't looked at the recent data to speak to it specifically. But when we're looking at the mental health of girls, yes, it absolutely took a hit. And I'm sure, I think it's because of the measure. And I think girls also may have been, you know, I, I see girls reaching out when asked, when asked about their social emotional health, a lot of them are quite help seeking. And, you know, not all, and maybe not enough, and there's disparities in that as well. But 
I think maybe women are encouraging girls. Maybe there's more acceptance in talking about this might, might be part of the measure, but probably not enough to get them to where they need to be and to make some gains from this. Okay. So Felix, go ahead. I, yeah, one thing I, I want to add, and not to vilify social media or, or harp too much on the negative effects of social media, mm-hmm. but in my experience with the teenage girls that I've worked with, I do feel that social media has impacted them more negatively than boys, just in terms of the material, the content that they're being exposed to mm-hmm. at, at such a high rate, right? The, the way that we're consuming information online and on social media is, is at a faster rate than ever. Um, and, you know, I think we're being exposed to, to social comparisons, to unrealistic body image standards. Um, and at least in my experience, I can't speak to research, but in my experience, that has had a more detrimental impact on girls. Um, I, I would agree with that, Felix. I mean, I even ask kids sometimes to take out their feeds and like look at their feeds and sort of see if it kind of relates to some of the symptoms that I'm seeing. And most are eager to show me. Let me, I have two, let me ask two quick uh, follow-up questions if I could. The data uh, on suicidality, I I have to say, I've been familiar with this data for some while. And in fact, we know just regardless of age group, since 2000, we've seen increases uh, in this category. Did did you find this uh, particularly surprising? I mean, the data has been the same or worse uh, since 11 in this survey, uh, what's your take on on suicidality? So I, I found it alarming, David. Um, and I think so many factors may may contribute to, to that number, right? Um, I know that the survey speaks about this big increase in overall feelings of sadness and hopelessness mm-hmm. in teenagers. That also has been really consistent in what I've observed in my practice. Um, you know, I, I think it does relate to teens living more and more in an online world, which is largely filled with material that contributes to hopelessness, to anxiety and depression. Um, you know, I think some of the larger social issues that we're being exposed to online and that teenagers are being exposed to online um, can cause this sense of existential dread, you know, um, climate change, gun violence, war, COVID. I think we're being bombarded with that information online at an unprecedented rate. And I think that it really contributes quite a bit um, to that sense of hopelessness that teenagers can experience, Um, you know, because these issues are directly tied to their futures. Um, And when they're feeling hopeless about these issues and about how it will impact their future, um, I think that can have a really profound effect. Thank you. Um, The second question, and then we'll move on. Um, I, I did want to call out the, the specific data as it relates to it in, in the in the survey, LGBTQ students. Um, sadly, I'll admit I don't spend enough time on this, uh, say, subpopulation or population, regardless of age and their health status. Can either comment or want to comment on data related to uh, uh, this population of high school students? Sure, David. I'm I'm happy to comment on that. Um, So I know that the survey showed for LGBTQ plus students, as well as female students and students of color, that they felt less connected at school. But that had me thinking about the possibility that they may be feeling 
less connected in general in many different parts of their lives in many of the different communities that they're a part of. Um, and I wonder if that, that's one contributing factor. Um, I'm also thinking of, you know, LGBTQ youth and the home environment and how at times that really may not be very reaffirming. Um, and during the pandemic, you know, families were forced to spend so much more time together. And I think that really exacerbated a lot of the difficulties and the issues in the family system. I'm thinking about LGBTQ youth specifically and how difficult it was for many of them um, to be sort of spending so much time in their home environment when maybe they weren't feeling supported or affirmed by their parents, um, you know, in, in their exploration of their, their identities. So I'm wondering if that, that was an important factor there. Okay, thank you. Laura, you have a comment or otherwise I have a follow-up here? I, no, I, I would agree with Felix's take on that. I think, you know, looking for identity and not having other sources to that in such an isolated environment is likely something that's affecting these kids, you know, generally. All right, so let's go to that uh, resource question. And this is, uh, so moving on. So typically when we discuss behavioral health services, as I have over, I've been doing this 11 years, um, you know, the two issues is, the two issues are rather frequently access, timeliness of care, of course, which is always a big issue, a problem. And the other is integrating behavioral health services with, say, physical, more traditional health care, two major challenges in, um, so integrating behavioral health and then, again, timely access and sort of timely diagnosis because, of course, uh, too few mental behavioral health uh, clinicians. It, would you say those are the themes that you're moreover that you're dealing with in your practice? Or I don't want to, I don't want to guess. So my question for you more generally or generically is, so what are the major challenges in your delivering behavioral health? So I'm fortunate in the sense that I'm embedded on the pediatric team here at East Boston Neighborhood Health Center. I'm sitting here talking to you from the pediatric team. So I work hand-in-hand with pediatricians here to be able to do curbside consults, answer questions, take their cases. So the care that we're able to provide here, um, while always not immediate, is pretty, is, is in a sense right embedded into what we do with our integrated model. Okay, thank you. Felix? Yeah, so one thing I, I could clarify for the audience is that at East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, we have um, two different sites. So I'm over at the South End site. Laura is at the East Boston site. We're one team. Um, we have a very aligned mission in supporting our patients. But one difference between the two sites is that over at the South End site where I am, we do provide um, more long-term therapy for patients. So that differs a bit um, in that I'm not embedded in the medical unit the same way that Laura is. Um, at times, we, we do see waiting lists grow um, for children and teenagers just because of the demand, the need, and the fact that not every clinician um, you know, specializes in working with children and teenagers. Um, I, I do believe that our healthcare system in general has just not caught up to the issue that I outlined before, to this significant increase in internalized symptoms. Um, and I, I just hear too many concerning and disturbing stories of teenagers who show up in emergency rooms with significant concerns, such as 
suicidal um, behavior and are being held in the emergency room for long periods of time awaiting placement somewhere. So I think we just we need more therapists, we need more inpatient units, we need more crisis stabilization units to support these children. And focusing on pro being proactive, right, versus reactive in the sense of being able to provide things when people are ready to engage in care at the time. I mean, that is a struggle. And long-term services, you're absolutely right, Felix, it's really hard to get that into place. Insurance limitations as well. well That's right. Also, go ahead. really quickly, David, um, I just believe that early intervention and screening is so vital as well, right? I think the earlier we can detect mental health issues in our children, um, the sooner we can support them and perhaps prevent a more serious um, mental health issue from developing later in life. Um, so I think that's something we're introducing a lot more at our health center um, is screening children, right, for, for anxiety, for depression, um, really at all of their healthcare visits so that we're not missing um, some of these symptoms so that they're not flying under the radar. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the Preventive Services Task Force and, you know, we're screening populations generally for depression because it's so common. Uh, your answers both caused me to recall, you know, obviously several years ago now we passed mental health parity legislation. Of course, the jury's still out to the extent that's been successful um, per your comments. I, I do want to ask a particular question, um, probably because I don't understand it. Um, and this is the issue of self-harm amongst teenagers or adolescents. Um, could, could you, um, you know, it's prevalence, it's cause, what's its treatment. Um, it is a particularly disturbing behavior or mental health issue, behavioral health issue. So I'm, I'm generally interested in, in what you're experiencing and what's your experience in that realm. It's something I feel like I see often. I, my experience with it, I do think at times does re and of course this predates the online environment. I was saying it before the, you know, the pandemic before TikTok, before all of those things. But I do think there's a contagion effect with it when it's viewed as a strategy that releases pain, releases stress. And you have an adolescent who finds that it helps them in that way. They share that with other adolescents. And you definitely can see a contagion effect with that. I mean, and it's real. People are expressing real pain. I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But my experience, actually, a question I sometimes ask is, you know, when someone's telling me they do it to release pain or get a release, I say, like, oh, how did you hear about that? And a lot of times I do get to see an online a feed, somebody's TikTok feeds or something they've seen online, or they tell me about a friend or somebody else where they got that strategy from. Okay, thank you. Felix, comment? Yeah, I mean, just to add to, to what you said, Laura, I think a, a concern that I've had is that children are learning some of these unhealthy coping mechanisms online, and the information that they're taking in is often going unchecked, right? They're processing that information alone. They're spending countless hours online by themselves, and they, they aren't reflecting that information back off of another person and processing it with someone else who might be able to give them insight. Um, so that's where I think as, you know, as educators, as parents, as therapists, having open, non-judgmental conversations with our children about what they're consuming online, what they're seeing, 
how they're coping with emotional distress is so important. Okay. Completely agree. And I think modeling those conversations with parents in terms of parent education, I feel like it's a lot in my experience is a fair amount of what I do too. Okay, thank you. So, uh, Felix, you noted at the top that the, the survey showed some improvements, overall improvements in uh, risky sexual behavior and then substance use, which I found uh, a little odd. So, um, substance use, the latter, uh, illicit drugs, misuse, prescription opioids, alcohol, and marijuana use, although obviously becoming more uh, uh, legalized. Um, so I'm going to skip the substance abuse question. I'd like to go to uh, treatment therapies, um, and and I would prefer to avoid um, pharmacological th- therapy, although I'm sure that's obviously an important part of your both your practices. Um, but if you can give me a sense of uh, uh, therapies that you provide, ser- th- therapeutic services you provide, what's what's proving to be successful. Uh, clinically, um, I'm, I'm curious. To, 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 we should we should afford that some time here. Um, David, one one therapeutic approach that I have found to be very helpful in, with children and teen, teenagers is cognitive behavioral therapy. Right, I, I that's was I was going to guess. Yes, great. Go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> you had a feeling that one was coming. Yes, up. yes, yes. Um, so, just kind of to go back to what I discussed before where you know children are consuming all of this information online it's going unchecked they're processing it by themselves i think what's really helpful about cognitive behavioral therapy is that we're helping children um you know analyze the way that they're thinking about situations take a look at cognitive distortions that they might be forming um unrealistic beliefs um and helping them create more balanced and healthier ways of thinking about themselves thinking about the world about how they can cope with the stress that they're facing. Um, so that's where I think that cognitive behavioral therapy is, is so important. Um, but I connect with the kids with whom I work in, in many different ways. You know, we use a lot of movement to connect. Um, I try to meet with the kids that I work with in person as much as possible because I think that just really fosters the connection. You know, being in a room together, moving together, even shooting hoops together, I think can really help a child feel more comfortable and learn to open up. So the therapeutic relationship is important, um, which we've largely lost. But in in, um, in behavioral help, I I certainly hope it's still a value. But uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Laura. No, I agree. That therapeutic reliance is huge. It's huge. Okay. I'm going to ask one quick other question, then we're going to try to uh, spend some minutes on policy, and that is alternative therapies – um, I've spent uh, a fair amount of time on various uh, discussions on various meditation uh, uh, models or approaches. Um, anything, say, would be still possibly considered uh, less traditional therapeutic approaches uh, do you find useful? Okay. So, I mean, I'll take that and... I, so for me, a lot of my visits that I do with um, kids are in the clinic, and a lot of them are, end up being more of a family visit for various reasons. So um, I absolutely use cognitive behavioral techniques. 
I also try to do things to help build resiliency, which cognitive behavioral therapy does as well, because I think that's really important in, in kids and their families. And in my business, I feel like I do a lot of like filial and parenting support and parenting empowerment too. Okay, thank you. Felix, do you have a comment? Yeah, so you mentioned meditation, David. Yeah, I, yes. I've taught meditation to, to many of the children and teens I work with. You know, I, I used to run a therapy group with um, elementary school age children, and we would do a, a weekly meditation at the start of each of our sessions. And I was amazed at how much they gravitated towards that, you know, um, how much they just embraced that opportunity to pause, to connect with their breath. Um, so I, I found that very helpful. Um, and yeah, just kind of going back to um, what I said before about the, the importance of movement. And right? I think um, the ways in which we connect with other people um, through movement, so whether that's in, in a group setting, whether that's one-on-one, -on -one, I think it, it just really fosters connection. It creates comfort. Um, I think it, it can be a really important component also of working with people who have experienced trauma, um, learning to safely connect with another person um, in that way. You know, I hadn't thought of this question, but I, I'm interested now to ask, and that is because you both mentioned uh, social media isolation uh, and the effects, um, to what extent is, and you and, and the answer is just sort of uh, taking a, a, the family unit as the approach to uh, delivering services, to what extent is are your practices intentionally trying to improve socialization or social skills? for, um, I suppose, particularly possibly boys, um, or to what extent is that a part of your practice? I think we're always trying to model and help model pro-social behaviors just in the way that we treat people and the way that we use our alliance um, as a place to start with that and then give, you know, validate how that gets used outside of session, outside in the world. Um, because it is a place, especially when it's in person, which I think we're luck luckily doing a lot more of, where you get to have that energy of the room and use that to build on outside of session. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'm going to pass on the, the telehealth question uh, that's on the list. Um, and of course, obviously, uh, uh, telehealth use during the COVID pandemic for all the obvious reasons. Um, let's let's move to policy. So I'll just ask this uh, as an open-ended question. Where do you see the policy reform opportunities uh, to improving? And I'll pick up on Felix's point, early diagnosis. Uh, but where do you think the policy opportunities are? And you could be as specific or as generic as you want. You could say specific to, you know, your, your state Medicaid program. However, I'm just going to ask this open-ended. I mean, I think step one is helping to remove the stigma with patients and families of mental health. And while it's not my function here at the clinic, I've spent a lot of time in school-based mental health centers. And one of the things that we used to, in that position that we strived for, was to create, I had an, um, an old manager who used to say, we want to be the mom and pop of mental health, where people could come into their, you know, kids' schools in a place they felt comfortable, but find a contracted provider. And that was something that was pretty effective because it brought things down to the grassroots level. So finding ways to make those kind of services accessible and reimbursable in a way that, you know, people feel comfortable accessing, I think, in my opinion, would be helpful. 
Thank you. I have a follow-up on that, but I'm going to go to Felix first. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think what we often come across in, in mental health care and in families is that there will be an identified patient and the focus is on that person and their symptoms. Um, so I think on a policy level, um, like finding ways to support families more, right? Mm-hmm. I think um, families experience stress together. I think especially during the pandemic, right? Families overall just experience more chronic stress. And children tend to pick up on the coping mechanisms of their parents, of their caregivers. Um, so I think we just need to approach it from that perspective, right? We need to educate families. We need to support families as a unit rather than just focusing on the individual symptoms of one person or the identified patient. Um, and like I mentioned before, right, I, I think we just need more funding. Um, our healthcare system has not caught up to significant spike in mental health symptoms in, in children. Um, so we just need more therapists. We need more centers that support children in crisis. Um, I think that is just so vital. So per that point and a related point Laura made, the question I really wanted to, probably the, the lead question in this discussion for me is over the several over several decades, we've seen a decrease in school-based care. So, for example, years ago, almost well, generally speaking, there was there was a school nurse. You could argue how many days, how many hours uh, the school nurse was uh, office was funded, but there was clinical care provided within the school, uh, various uh, uh, trained clinicians. We, we've moved away from that. Uh, so my question is, in Massachusetts, to the, what extent do school staff clinicians, to what extent do you think they, they should do more of that? And to what extent do you think uh, school-based clinical care uh, is effective and how we could, and assuming it is, can we, how can we do more of it? Okay. So in a prior experience of mine, again, not here at the clinic, I was a school nurse. Mm-hmm. And it was in Massachusetts and a different community. And Massachusetts at the time was thought to actually, we, we had the goal of a nurse for every school and in the district I worked in, that was the case. Now, school-based services that I found a lot of times are partnerships with other community organizations and are not necessarily, and are not often school employees it's, you know, a lot of times an outpatient service that's contracted with the school where they could get services during their school day. And, yeah, I think it does help remove a stigma. Um, I think amongst the other kids, like kids used to ask to come see me when I was part of that. Um, there wasn't a stigma of having to leave the classroom that some of the adults faced when presented with their kids having services. And it was pretty normalized by the kids. So I think that can be very helpful if it can be reimbursed on a policy level. But schools also gotten more academic. And I think the worry that people have had is that removes time away from learning. So it's about finding those partnerships within the individual school districts. And the culture of every school district can be different. All right. Thank you. Obviously, in your bio, you are a school nurse, city of Medford. Uh, so in part, what I asked... Um, uh, Felix, uh, your your take on school-based care. Yeah, you know, I, I've also been doing school-based work for almost 10 years now um, with 
some of the public schools with whom we have a partnership here at the health center. And I do have to say over the last few years, I've, I've noticed a shift and there just seem to be less clinicians, um, less consistent behavioral health supports available to the students. Um, I can't speak to exactly what's causing that. I imagine part of it is funding. Part of it may also be what Laura referred to, you know, that there is this clash at times between pressures for students to be involved in academics and behavioral health services interfering. Um, but it has been a big issue, you know, at, at some of the schools where I work, um, there are students on waiting lists who are just not receiving the care that they need because there aren't enough therapists available. So we sort of approach that as a team. We step in and support students as much as we can, but it's difficult to see students who really need the care and just are not able to get it um, in the time that they need. Um, so that's something that I hope will shift. And I, I do believe that a, a big part of the problem is funding. Yeah, always always uh, a variable in all this. My my final question, I this is sort of formulated when I'm speaking with clinicians, is uh, on this subject, what would you, what advice would you give to listeners who are parents relative to these survey findings and just generally uh, their children's be, uh, uh, behavioral health? So I, I'd like to take things at a pretty um, plain spoken level and advice I give to parents based on the survey and really in general is be present. Know what your kids are doing. Know what they're looking at. There's a, you know, it's some, it may feel intrusive, but being present Really, there isn't a substitute for that. And I mean, I don't always mean physically present, but I mean aware of what, again, what their fees look like, where they're going, what are, what is, what are they doing online? Who are they speaking to? Um, those kind of things I think are vital for parents in maintaining their kids' safety and protecting their mental health. Okay. Sound advice. Uh, thank you, Laura. Uh, Felix. Yeah. To add to what you said, Laura, I think learning how to recognize those symptoms of, of mental health issues, symptoms of anxiety and depression that might not be as clearly apparent as certain problematic behaviors, right? Some things I could point to are increased isolation, changes in your child's eating and sleeping habits, a lack of interest in activities, mood shifts that you're noticing, just being really attuned to that. And I would really encourage families to have open conversations about mental health, you know, to decrease that stigma. Um, to help our kids understand that receiving mental health treatment or talking about your mental health doesn't make you crazy, and that it, it's a healthy thing to do. So, um, and doing that in a non-judgmental way, right? Approaching our children and um, letting them know that they can talk to us about anything, whether it's what they're seeing on social media, whether it's what's going on with peers at school, and really taking that non-judgmental supportive stance, I think is so important. Because if a child feels judged, if they feel criticized, they're not going to want to share what's going on in their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could be hard as a parent. I mean, that can be hard to recognizing for a parent that open presentness. You know, it's that can that's different than a lot of how a lot of people were raised. So helping model that for parents, I think, becomes important too. Yeah, and you throw in cultural variables. There's there's it's a complicated subject, of course. Um, but sound advice, uh, both. So thank you. So with that, uh, we're about at our time. So I want to say thank you, uh, uh, Felix and Laura for this discussion. 
helpful as it is interesting. Uh, so I wish you uh, luck with your work. And again, I'm very appreciative for your time. Thank you very much for having us. Great to Thank be here. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.